What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is House Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah, you'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north, yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate, Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics. Yep. From in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one- Part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both areas. Yeah. I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home train that dog. Well, you're sipping cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over gallivanting. the world. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Welcome back to episode 201, brought to you by Little Bitch Productions. <laughs> <laughs> 201. 201. So we had our 200 with Boyd. Yeah. Mm. Holy shit, we've been at this a long time. 200 episodes. Can you believe it? I can't believe people listen to 200 episodes of us just talking bullshit to each other. <laughs> not only like not only have they listened to 200 episodes, but they've also re-listened to episodes. So there's people who've probably done 400 episodes because like they've listened to them twice. Well, I have Madness. to listen to everything twice because I've got to do the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And then I've got to listen to it in post-production. You got to – it's – 
you must get so sick of it. You've got to have the conversation, then edit the conversation and then actually listen to the whole thing. That's what I find with the YouTube videos, like about a minute is mm. about an hour's work. And then you watch the same thing like 400 times because you've got to stitch it together, check that that worked, check that that worked, then the final watch of the whole thing. And it's not like you can just kind of half pay attention because you've got to watch the whole you know, you got to really pay attention because you got to check that there's no missing frames or any of that kind of stuff. It's got to be the same for you. You must be so sick of me talking. It's just part of the job. And you're exactly right in what you're saying. Like anybody who's involved in editing or post-production. So for example, on Sunday, I put out Narelle's one. I think I might've done hers before, but I did Narelle's episode. She did one on CBD oil with Mm -hmm. a veterinary doctor called Dr. Lee, which was a great episode. If you haven't listened to that, have a listen to it. So he talks about the clinical function of pharmaceutical CBD. And then we give us the cliff notes. Yay or nay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Great idea. idea. Primarily what he was saying was that in super high doses, CBD, there's toxicity like there isn't anything, but he treats everything you know, whether it's natural therapy or anything like that as a a drug administration, not to just take it candidly. Mm. But he said there's so many great qualities about CBD Mm. that we're, and the jury's still out on it because they're still learning a lot about it. Yeah. Like when you say super high doses, you're talking like drink a truck. Oh yeah, absolutely. CBD is very safe. And that's what he kept referring to. And we had that lady who was a vet. I can't remember her name. Do you remember her name? Uh, Cassandra Andre. That's her name. And she came on when we were over in the IACP conference over in Colorado. Mm. And she was talking about cannabinoids and how safe they are and how there's a lot more extensive research happening around the world. You know, like for a long time, CBD was considered something like THC, which Mm. is marijuana, as we know, a big taboo in doing any sort of research on it. But now people have realized hemp seed and hemp and CBD, you know, like there are so many applications for it like we can really change the world on things like this and it's just been outrageous that governments have been allowed to get away with suppressing and we're going to talk about suppressing shortly but it's kind of crazy that because of the taboo around thc like the but even that i think even that taboo is lifting quite absolutely and rightly so because of a lot of benefits from it yeah it's an interesting one like it's it's probably a not the scope of this podcast but the history around cannabis and why it was demonized mm. and it was really to do with textiles more than anything. It was hemp and the production yeah, of, right. of paper exactly. and cardboard and cotton influential people at the time deciding that that's where they wanted the market to go rather than into this other cheaper, better product that was easier to make. It's unlike politics to be influential and get in the way of anything. Well, or- not just politics, the, you know, the will of billionaires. Yes. That's really what it was. It's well, just- politics is largely influenced through yeah. the will of, of very wealthy people. Yeah. This could undermine my bottom line. So I need to radically alter the shape of society yeah. in order that I stay at the top. Yeah. It's funny when you see mainstream media and politicians who are sponsored by very wealthy companies, <laughs> isn't it? Anyway, yeah. I won't go down that rabbit hole. But on that on that cannabis space, especially not just in the in dogs, but in everything, and a lot of the drugs that are largely referred to, a, you know, a thought of a lot of the psychedelics and that kind of stuff that are largely thought of as party drugs and people, you know, things that, you know, you shouldn't or it's not medicinal mm. is now proving to be the opposite. And it, like, you know, I follow pretty closely because I have a lot of friends involved in PTSD treatment, that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of really promising research in that space. Well, Bertie's getting invested in understanding yeah. and um, researching even Dr. Cassandra Andre. Mm. 
she was looking into MDMA for yeah. PTSD treatment, yeah. um, psilocybin from magic mushrooms and so forth for, yeah. for treatment. Yeah, and the absolute outrage that people have had over many years that, you know, like these things have just been a blanket ban. And, yeah, I know people can abuse them. I mean, they've been abusing alcohol and nicotine for years. Yeah. And that was the point. Like people are saying you're concerned about a small area of psychedelics, yet there are areas of abuse going on in other, you know, like even pharmaceutical abuse. Yeah. There have been opioids that people have completely abused and being able to pharmacy shop around all their neighborhood and get all and, and get high and cause all sorts of problems with that. Yeah. But anyway, we're not the pharmacy and we're not the psychedelics. No, but to hear more about CBD and its effect on dogs. Mm. Narelle's podcast with Dr. Lee. Check it out. Yeah. So CBD, for anybody who's interested in getting access to pharmaceutical grade, like it's been properly extracted, Go and speak to CBD Vets Australia Mm. and they have a website and you can speak to them about having a consult and getting your dog on it. So we've got Opie, who's our little French bulldog, Eggie, and he's got some- French uh, bulldog problems. Yeah, literally. He's got arthritis in his spine and so forth like that just from being a French bulldog. So we decided to put him on CBD and we're already seeing benefits like behavioral benefits, pain-related benefits. Not radical, like I'm not saying it's like all of a sudden he's just a new dog, but there's definitely changes in his behaviour. Not only is he having that, Narelle's put him on a cocktail of things like curcumin and all sorts of things, but you yeah. can you can listen to her podcast. She talks about that at quite length. Yeah. Um, I think CBD is really effective. I think it's like from my personal experience, uh, it's tricky because you can't talk to dogs like exactly how much does this help and whatever, but when I started taking CBD a few years ago, joint inflammation was radically affected yep. and it didn't help me with any of my acute injuries, but it's certainly, you know, my body's totally fucked, right? Um, yeah. It's totally ruined. And I don't have a single joint that doesn't give me trouble at some point, but the ones that are kind of small niggling problems stopped being small niggling problems when I was using CBD. Relief is relief, right? Yeah. But so like, it's not going to help my fractured back. It doesn't help for shit with that. Mm. But like, you know, my like shitty elbows, like that kind of stuff, like it helps a lot with that. Yeah. I completely understand. I mean, after 30 years of being working with, you know, catching dogs and, and so forth, it, it's played havoc. Like my chiropractor, he just says, I'll do what I can. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I literally have a monthly schedule with my chiropractor. Yeah. And he just said, you know, you've, your back's pretty messed up and your shoulders are wrecked and, yeah. you know, like your neck is always – my neck is always out. I've got tinnitus in my ears, not just from bad neck and so forth. It was from a diving squeeze accident as well. But you are a, and I say this with respect, but you are an old warlord when you come off the dog field after many years. Like you get absolutely beaten and bruised and battered. And Well, so this is one of the really interesting things. We can probably shelve Liam's uh, <laughs> idea once again. Um, oh, fuck you, Liam. <laughs> we'll talk about suppression at some point. But yep. I think it's very interesting when you see everybody knows the inevitable outcome of being a decoy. Yeah. Right? That's the way it goes. Mm. Every decoy will say, you know, you end up injured from it, right? And it's fucking, of course you are. You're getting bitten by dogs. Mm. And especially if you're a pro decoy, not just like someone who helps out at the club a little bit, but your job is to be a decoy. I don't mean pro as in good. I mean pro as in like professional people pay you. Yeah. There's an inevitable end point where you can't do that anymore because your body is too damaged from having done it. You can do it. You just can't do it with the fluency and the flash and the pizzazz that you used to be able to do it. Yeah. You can do some of the development work. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But, you know, like the big hits and the long courage tests and so forth where the fast moving males, shepherds and roddies would come in on you and just pound you. And then you'd just be able to divert them and spin them around and catch them and then drive them down the field. 
when you're a young man and your body's in good shape, that's easy done, you yeah. know, and you can you can sort of sit there with a big smile on your face going, oh, I look great doing that. Yeah. But when you're an old guy and the dog comes in, it, it, it looks like a fucking, it looks like two trains hitting each other. Yeah. And then just like falling apart on the fucking railway. Yeah. And so like there's a huge physical element to being a decoy. I think that that's one of the things that people sort of overlook quite a bit when you get enthusiasts, people who are, you know, want to, you know, it, it's a great way to develop as a trainer, regardless mm, of absolutely. What, regardless of what aspect of dog training you want to be involved in. Getting some skills up as a decoy, mentoring under a as talented decoy will improve you as a dog trainer immensely. Because no doubt. you know, it's very rare in any other space in dog training that you're so intimately engaged with the dog. Like you and the dog are really together mm. when the dog is biting you on purpose and you're not trying to escape that bite, right? Like you're trying to work through that bite. There's probably, I can't think of anyway, a time where you are more connected with the dog, literally connected via its teeth. But as a handler, you know, you're you're asking the dog to go and do things, you know, no matter what area of training you can think of, you're asking the dog to engage with other things as well, mm. right? Whereas as a decoy, it's like, it's just you and the dog together. And I think that certainly I found when I started decoying more, that that's when my skills really escalated because you get to really read a dog and you, it's a high stakes game as well. You know? Absolutely. You, you know, like just the other day, you know, with the dogs that me and Jazz are raising, both of us could see, cause we both do a lot of decoying that, I knew this dog was going to have a dirty out just by the way he was biting. And when I stopped, all the signals were this dog, he's going to take a cheap shot on his yep. way out because we're doing, all, it was very high pressure work yep. that we were doing. And he was loading. And, yeah. And, yeah. and that's the level that we were practicing outing under, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're at that point with the dogs, we've got to get them to the point where they understand even in that defensive state, you still have to let go. And, you saw it because we're out there. You saw it was going to come. I saw it was going to come. Jazz knew it was coming before we even asked for the behavior. So she was prepared, ready to go and knew that was what would happen. And but you're had, in a new location as well, which yeah. adds an, a, like a whole different layer of service. And this is a, you know, sorry to interject here, but around this discussion, this is the whole thing that people have been doing in their safe environment for a long period of time. Like they'll, they'll go, oh yeah, I've been doing it at home in the backyard or down in my local park or in my, mm -hmm. in my training shed and, and my dog is doing superior outs take it to a new shed. Yeah. This is when we talk in NDTF about shifting phases, mm -hmm. you know, like you're going between a training proofing phase because people will say, oh, my dog does a perfect sit in this environment. Yeah. He does a perfect sit in this environment. He does a perfect sit in this environment. But you take the dog to an alien environment or an environment that the dog is semi-familiar with. But again, the level of stress raises and all of those are compounding effects on whether the dog will do it or not. Yeah. So you've got to understand, and this is, and I know you get this, but for people who are listening that may not understand this so well, you've got to understand and you've got to be prepared that you need to shift phases. Like mm. just because you're proofed in all of these other environments, the minute that you step into something which is more high value and the stakes have raised, you've got to be prepared that you're shifting phases. Like mm. you're back into a training phase again where you need to be once again a little bit more heavily involved in the operant side because the dog is now in a different mindset. Mm. He's thinking, oh, this is a little strange. It's a little different. It's not the same environment that I'm used to. I don't feel as relaxed here. Mm. And performers who, you know, like I've spoken to performers in different arts, whole different arts, and they always say, I'm not home base or anything like that. It takes me a little bit of time to warm up. Once they warm up, they're fine, but they just they have preparations and different rituals that they need for different locations. But sometimes we don't give those allowances to dogs. I know you do, and I know I do, 
But even sometimes we can be a little bit lapse in that or a little bit forgetful about it and think, mm. oh, yeah, fuck, that's why he's been such an asshole because he's not actually being an asshole. He's just a little more stressed. He's a little bit more loaded up. Yeah. Mm. Just thinking as you were talking then to change gears once again, <laughs> that is the key reason I remain a balanced trainer mm. because I think that when you do use tools and, and Pressure into a behavior and positive reinforcement out of a behavior. If one day, and I truly believe this is the biggest benefit that we have, and I've spoken with pos- you know, with plus R trainers or whatever who don't use any tools or, or negative reinforcement, try to avoid it on purpose. It's the length of time. Well, no, not just that, but what they, the, the good ones, usually sort of acknowledge and sort of go, yeah, I see that is the big benefit that you have, and I kind of wish that I had that, is the diagnosis over whether a dog knows it and is choosing not to do it versus doesn't know it, even though everything seems to you like they should. Let me mm. give you an example. This is the example I always use when I'm teaching this, and I won't, so I won't use the bite work one. But one of the first and the things that I put a lot of work into with puppies, and certainly with Remy, for example, is the hold. And so I teach that hold on my mill, in my garage, and food is the reinforcer. That's how I teach it. Yep. And it's pretty low arousal, you know, it depends on the dog and how aroused they are by food and, you know, how aroused they are being on the meal, but the meal's locked it for all intents and purposes may as well be a table. And I free shape the idea, you hold this pipe, you get food. Mm -hmm. And from that, I get my out and I get my retrieve and I get ways to assist in grip work later when they're adults and lots of things. It's a very valuable exercise for me. But before I finish it and take it off the meal, I also layer pressure onto it. So even though it's a totally free shaped hold, this is where Bart refers to it as the unforced force fetch. Mm. Even though it's already happening and I've taught it 100% free shaped, before I can call it ready and, and finished, I've got to lay, put the pressure component in. So I do that with the slip lead and it's just that, you know, the dog usually shows me the timing of the pressure because I present the pipe that he's going to hold. He pulls into his collar trying to get to it because he knows that that's the gateway through which reinforcement will come and he mm. wants that reinforcement and he's not under any command. He's free to do whatever he wants standing on the mill, yep. but he can do hardly anything, which is why the mill is such a valuable tool in that space. So he pulls his own collar. And when he does that, I apply pressure with the slip lead in another direction as a form of communication. He takes the pipe because I'm, you know, I'm offering it to him. He knows that. And the moment he does, I turn off the pressure, mm. right? And so enough reps of that, I can, you know, generalize that pressure. I can change it to a prong collar, an e-collar, whatever. And without the dog having the context of the command or of the, you know, the presentation of the pipe, in that context on the mill, I can put that pressure on and the dog knows I will turn that pressure off via biting something, mm. right? By biting what's presented. And that's what I do with all dogs, right? It's a really valuable tool. I don't rush it. I take as long as it takes to do it. These days I'm pretty good with a puppy, especially a Mally puppy. I can get them to hold something within a couple of sessions because mm. they bite everything. So it's pretty easy to do. But by the time they're, you know, a few months old, I can put that in and, and the, sorry, not a few months old. I've had them a few months. So they're five, six months old. I can put the like a little bit of slip lead pressure into it so it's guiding into the behavior. So one day I then, with my own dog, I'm in a different environment. I'm at the park on a field and I've got the ball. And the dog's doing stuff because he knows a few little things and I present him the pipe to hold it and I say hold and he doesn't, right? Mm. So I go, oh, no problem. Like I, I have a tool for this. I have the ability to give you a correction, right? Because I've asked for a behavior. The behavior didn't happen and I... I can now use the pressure that you have turned off in the past by doing that behavior. If the dog has chosen to disobey the command, he knows how to turn off that pressure and, and, to, and 
you know, via the action that I'm asking for. So on this particular occasion when I do it with my dog, I say, hold, he doesn't, put the pressure on and he offers me a sit. In that moment, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, he does not know what I'm yeah, asking him to do. Yeah, because he offered, a, he, he he knows pressure and it's yep. not like I'm yanking and cranking. It's Gave a tiny behavior. Yeah. It's a mm. tiny bit of slip lead pressure, yep. but he knows, oh, that is compelling to action. Yep. And he offered me an action, which was not what I asked for. Mm. And in that moment, I immediately diagnose my dog is not paying me off. He yep. is not belligerent. You know, when you see people, he fucking knows this. Why isn't he doing it? I'll usually say, well, if he knew it, he probably would do it, especially mm. the way you're putting pressure on him. If he knew the path to turning that off, he would do it. Yep. And I feel like as balanced trainers, that is why I remain one because it gives me that. And I'm never in that position of like, I might find myself confused as to what changed because it felt to me like nothing changed. Like, you know, sometimes dogs, it's hard to get a read on what they have decided is an important part of the criteria sometimes. You know, like you might train a behavior in a particular environment and it's all sweet, but you don't know that the dog has been using some environmental cue that was important to them in the process of that behavior. Mm. So when you change environments, the dog's like, well, I can't do that behavior because the cue that I've been relying on is not present. And so they're not disobeying. They're not paying you off. They're not choosing not to do it from their perspective. It cannot be done. Yeah. Right. Or that they, they don't even understand that, you know, in this context, I could be asked that. So they can't even put together what you're asking for, let alone even thinking that what you're asking for can't be done. Mm. So having a phase in the learning that involves a form of pressure and no matter whether it's a tiny bit or a lot, then that gives me the, the ability to then, if the dog doesn't do the behavior, give that pressure. And if the dog then performs the behavior, in an attempt to turn that pressure off, I know without a shadow of a doubt, he was just distracted or, you know, otherwise motivated or whatever. He knew what I was asking for and chose not to do it because the, you know, my reinforcer wasn't high enough mm. and, and he was, you know, my motivational math didn't align. And of course, that's something I have to figure out and address later on. Like I need to, if I'm offering the dog the ball and he's like, you know, interested in birds and I tell him to do something and he doesn't do it. And then I put pressure on him. He doesn't do it because he knows the payment could be the ball and then he doesn't do it, so I put pressure on, and then he does it, I know what I did then was reduce the value of the of the birds because my pressure reduced the value of that, and now he will accept my ball, knowing mm. that I turn off one, I get Shifting to hit it in both directions. Yep. Mm. But if I do that and he still doesn't do what I asked for, without any doubt in my mind, I'm 100% certain right there and then he doesn't know what I'm asking for. Mm -hmm. And I can apologize to the dog for even putting any pressure on him in that moment and say, hey man, like we're back to a learning phase. And that learning phase will involve pressure. It may or may not right there and then that's going to absolutely determine, you know, be determined on the spot. Mm. But I'm not going to be correcting the dog because I cannot make that dog correct. If the pressure that follows the command that was disobeyed or not followed doesn't make it happen, no more of it is going to make it happen, mm. right? So then I, I have to shift focus and go, okay, we're back to learning. And that radically changes the way I'm now treating my dog because I'm, I'm not going to be reinforcing within a chain of behaviors. If he's still learning it, I need to go back to the learning phase, which is reinforcement every behavior, right? Yep. I can't chain things together in a learning phase or else, you know, there's lots of things. It's that not ready for that. it. You're still in continuous schedules. Yeah. Yeah. So 
that's one of the things. You might be at a variable reward schedule one place with the same behavior and have it schmick, mm-hmm. like good to go. And then you change one of the variables within that and the dog is no longer doing it. And without having a pressure in a learning phase that you can then use as a correction, you have to guess. You're then sort of stuck like, mm. Is he or isn't he? Yeah, is he paying me off? Like, mm. what's the things here? And you have no choice but to then, you know, your the way that you would have to work that. And, of course, there's it's not like you're lost, right? It's not like you just give up, right? But if you don't have those pressure components, then you then have to say, okay, well, I have to reduce the criteria of what I'm asking for. And that might be proximity and distance. That might be going back to a different location. Like, you have to put a lot of work into finding out which is the variable that got me here. Is mm. the dog paying me off or does he not understand? As a trainer that trains the way I do, I don't have to do any of that. I can I can determine right there and then. And for me, that's the value of it, right? Like that's, that's where it's at. So to go back to the original example, we were just saying like with that dog, I knew he was going to have a dirty out because exactly as you said, there was way more pressure than – it was the first time he'd been on a table. Yep. And he'd done like pressure work, like he'd done defensive work before, but not on a table, which is a really different experience. Mm. And he was in a new location. And because I'd put quite a lot of pressure on him on that table, I'd given him massive wins. And that table's a great setup that Ben built because like we've got the quick release on it. So when he counted, I popped it. Like in his mind, he would have thought he broke the back tie. Yeah. Like that dog's feeling powerful as shit in that moment. And I fell to the floor and it was this whole, you know, that dog felt like it was not only a real fight, but a real fight. He was fucking winning. Yeah. Yeah. He's a doubt. triumphing. Yeah. So of course he's going to be dirty in the out. Mm. <laughs> of course. Everyone can Why fight that. that hard just to give it up straight away. Yeah. Yeah. But we know. Like, does he know how to out? Yeah, pretty confident. But we take into account all of these things and we know it's not that he doesn't know an out command. That's not what's going to happen here. It's going to be that he's going to be dirty because the values are in the wrong place, right? He knows he's outing for the potential to rebite and that rebite in all of his outs has always been a prey kind of bite, Mm. right? And so he doesn't want to let go of this powerful defensive feeling that he's feeling. He feels you know, hugely powerful in this moment. And he knows if I out and reset, I'm not going to feel the same. It's going to, it's going to feel good, but it's not going to feel as good. Mm. Or the other option is I'm going to get given the ball or food or whatever. And and those pale in comparison to what I just had. So we all stand by, we all know he's going to take a cheap shot as he outs. We tell him to out. He needed a little help with the prong collar to come off. And it was pressure that was compelling him. Like, hey, man, this is what you have to do. Mm. Some fusion between what we we're talking about before. He's still learning. Like, you still have to do it in this level of arousal. I know you know what we're asking for, but under this level of arousal, you have to be able to do it. So that pressure is like some sort of fusion between a correction and learning. But then the real correction came when he took a cheap shot. Because it was like, hey, you're never allowed to do that. Yep. But we knew you were going to do it. We the, And everybody was ready. I had my hands out of the way. You know, he took a shot at my belly on his way down to the ground from a bicep mm. bite. Jazz is ready there to make sure he can't make contact because that's a, you know, if he's reinforced by doing that. He has to learn that's a penalty. Yeah, yeah. but there's, there's no better situation than that he tries. Yep. He finds out he can't do it. And Absolutely. also there's a consequence. Yep. That's the best. In another situation where you don't read the play, he tries, he's successful, then there's a consequence for that. And now you're introducing conflict because he got what he wanted and now you're punishing, right? Like, and, and your punishment has to be higher than the value of what he got, right? Because he, mm. he self-reinforced in that dirty bite. You know, that's the beauty of understanding this kind of stuff and, you know, being precise in your actions. And that's one of the reasons, you know, in dog training, that's, I don't like that haphazardness when people, you know, well, we'll just see what happens. And like, no. 
not going to see what happens. Yeah, it's got to be gonna, a it's got to be a game plan. Yeah, we're going to make what we want to happen happen. Mm. Right? We're going to we're going to make sure that the dog. Of course, he can make mistakes, and we're going to put the dog in a position sometimes to make mistakes, so that we can show, hey, that's the wrong thing to do. Right? Mm. We're not we're never going to set him up to to have a catastrophic error, but we're going to say, hey, sometimes it's confusing, man, yep. and you got to pay attention. You got to do the thing that you know that you've been trained to do, and of course, you'll make mistakes, and I'll I'll help you get it right, and you'll learn that there's not only no value in the 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 wrong thing that you're trying to do, but maybe some sort of negative consequence, something that you'll want to avoid. Yep. But the dream lies where with what we're asking you for. That's my simplified breakdown of what operant conditioning looks like is that there is a stimulus, a response, a consequence, which is either a positive or negative outcome. Without trying to get too far into the weeds of it, that's how I try and orchestrate and construct and allow everybody to look at the process. So when you are teaching a, any platform, like you were just talking about with a dog taking a cheap shot, Sometimes that dog might be mildly successful and get its front teeth onto everything. I mean, those sort of situations, you want to try and avoid them like the absolute plague. Mm. But sometimes it's also a very beneficial learning experience that, as you said, you can show the dog, hey, man, you may have got that then and you may have felt a small victory, but going forward, that's never going to pay off. Mm. That choice that you just made is only going to lead to poor outcomes from here on in. Like you might be taken away, you might get a correction, whatever it might be, you know, something that will have to be linked to an aversive because the dog has to realize the game ends for me when I start doing these behaviors. Yeah. Like I can attempt to do them, but my life goes downhill from here on in. Yeah. And I'm not talking like, you know, of anyone hearing that and thinking, whoa, that sounds really ominous. I'm not talking about a thrashing for the dog or to beat it. I just want the dog to comprehend that choice led to a shitty outcome for yeah. me. Not you what know, I wanted. Not what I wanted. But when I do play the game and I understand the rules between you and I, because, you know, there's clarity, we've developed a clarity of of a system between us. When I play the game that way, it's going to go really well. Just jumping into what you were talking about before and the dog going in a state of conflict, that happens regularly, even in things where the dog is, is considering not outing. Like the dog is in two frames of mind, which is exactly what conflict actually is. Yeah. It's two opposing mindsets fighting it out, duking it out inside your brain at the time. Will I or won't I? Should I or shouldn't I? That's a hard concept sometimes. Even the frustration for a handler and a decoy thinking, oh, you know this, you've done this in all environments, but you've just nominated a couple of really good key points. Sometimes the dog is in an environment where there may be a catalyst for why it happened so well. As you said, there is a lot of key indicators in the room that the dog goes, that's there, that's there. All my stars are aligning right now. This is the perfect environment to do this. Mm. However, when you come to a new environment, I mean, for that dog, it's not a brand new environment. We've indicated that he's been here as he's been a puppy, but it's been a long time since he's been here. And a lot has happened physically and mentally in that dog in the time that he's been away and come back. You know, there's people in the room. There's a shitload of other dogs that have been in and out of that room at the time. So there's a lot of odor in the room. You know, and you talk to people like Pat Nolan, Cameron Ford, Mike Suttle, anybody who's been involved in odor, even the fact of the different smells that are going on the room, the different odors, the different chemicals that are present, physiological and neurological odors that are floating around that room and so forth, that can have a profound effect on behavior. Mm. It has a profound effect on our behavior as well. Like, you know, there are so many subconscious cues and, and thought processes that are happening from that. So even though it sounds like 
extremely technical, which it is, it can still be simplified in the way that you behave and your action plan that you take it there. Because ultimately, when we're going in and out of phases, we're ultimately looking for some form of generalization where it doesn't matter if it's here. It doesn't matter if we're starting to up the stress levels with a dog. You know, it doesn't matter if there's a small crowd, a large crowd, dogs in the crowd or whatever. Eventually the dog's going to have to learn, that's just my life. Mm. That's how things are because you've shown me that there is no other way other than this way. Mm. You know, through many, many hours of trial and error and experimenting with different things and even feeling different feelings that I felt with before, I can manage that now. I don't have to feel concerned. I don't have to feel worried because the game plan is the game plan. There is no other way. Like I've tried and dogs try so many things. I think, and I used to always describe this to a lot of people that I was doing behavioral consults with, the dog is the eternal opportunist. It's Mm. always looking. It's the question that Bart raised at the start of his course. Why does a dog do what it does to better its own situation? Mm. Well, sometimes it doesn't know what bettering its own situation is, albeit through experimentation. Mm. We do the same. You know, like if we go out to a restaurant and we order a plate of food, I know I'm juggling a lot of things in the air right now. But if you go to a restaurant, you order something off the menu that you've never had before. You don't know whether you like it or not until it's gone into your mouth. Yeah. You know, like it's a whole fucking plate of experimentation. And this could be the best meal you've ever had. Or you might think, oh, that was fucking horrible. I'll never order that again. But you won't know until you try it. And that's Mm. exactly what our dogs are doing. Mm. You know, there's a whole game of experimentation going on. And you have to be the good shepherd. Mm. You know, you're guiding your dog to good pasture by saying, hey, man, this is the path that you've got to take. And yes, we're the marionette. We're pulling the strings on the puppet and guiding it exactly where we need to be. And it's got to be what it's got to be. Yeah. We were just discussing before we started recording about language, right? Mm. I put a lot of work into the words that I use, right? And and the way that I speak, you know, I'm essentially a professional talker now. Mm. <laughs> the way that I speak, I put a lot of thought into my choice of words because I always want to leave space to be wrong, right? Yep. It's really important to me that I leave space to be wrong because if I don't do that, then I can't grow. If I speak definitively about anything- when someone points out that I am wrong, I can't concede that because of how definitively I spoke. You know, I'd like to think that I would, but I think the the language you use frames the thoughts that you have, mm-hmm. right? And when you say this is 100% the way it is, there's no other way, when evidence is projected to you that there is another way, it can be very hard to take that on. So whenever I speak, especially about dog stuff, I like to keep in my mind that maybe I'm totally wrong about this and use words that give me the ability to change my mind, mm. right? And I often try to be, you know, the dumbest person in the conversation. A lot of the times I, I overwhelm myself with experts and stuff like that because I, I feel very comfortable there, right? I don't like being the expert. I much prefer being the person learning from them, right? I feel very comfortable in that position. But so to that effect, I think that when we talk about proofing behaviors, we often think of, and, and the way that we discuss that, when we, we, as dog trainers, we say we've got to go proof these behaviors. And what does that mean? That means it's a behavior that the dog knows. We're going to take it to a different location and we're going to make sure the dog gets it right. And I feel like even saying that, like make sure the dog still does it in that position. I feel like that can be language that isn't ideal for us because what I would prefer to think of it, and this is such a you know semantics thing, but I think it does frame the way that you'll end up treating the dog 
is that I say, I'm here to make sure the dog still understands it in this picture, mm. right? He's not here to like force him to do it or to get it right. I'm mean, to make sure that you still understand it because all the training I do is reinforcement based. Everything I'm going to teach the dog to do to everything that I'm going to teach him to do is the only way to do this. No matter what kind of training you are is reinforcement based. He will mm. find value in the things that I want him to find value in and that will be reinforcement and it will make him more likely to do it again. Then I get, I get my big human brain on and I put a classical signal at the front of that so that that triggers that sequence of behaviors and the dog thinks that he's doing for himself to earn reinforcement what I have told him to do. That's ha- dog training. Hang on, hang on. That sounds very much like the illusion of control. Yeah, that's dog training, right? Like it's that's funny, we've had discussions around this before and people have come in and out and saying, oh, I don't believe in the illusion of control, but... I absolutely want my dog to have that. And, it's, and But it's the way it's got to be. Largely, I think it's not even an illusion a lot of the time. I want my dog to be in control of the, it, it, the outcomes. But, they, but they, they feel like that, and we've manipulated the entire circumstance. Totally. To me, that's the illusion of control. Like you have allowed the dog to create this illusion in its mind, I'm in control, and you're a fucking great dog trainer if you're able to do that, yeah. or a dog handler. If you can create that environment where the dog is in full belief that I'm doing this because it benefits my life, yeah. well, bravo to you. Exactly. Like You have won the internet for the day, my yeah, friend. Yeah. yeah. So to that effect... What I think of when I'm going proofing Mm. is not to make sure the dog does it. When I'm proofing, I want to make sure the dog still finds value in it in this location or with this changing variable. And and I'm still going to do the same thing. It's just words. We're just playing word games. Mm. But the words that you use, especially if you're teaching this to someone, will will frame the way that they do it. So, you know, someone's got a, a sit on their dog. And it's, it's great and it works in the house. And then we say, okay, we've got to take that outside. We've got to proof it. And if you say to them, you know, you've got to make sure he does it outside, right? And they go out and they tell him to sit and he doesn't. It's very likely that now if they're not going to use any tools, then they're like, well, it can't be done, mm. right? Because I don't have the mechanism in place here. Where they, There's many things that they can do right there and there, even if they don't want to use tools. But a lot of people restrict themselves because they can't force the dog. Mm. And then some other people who will then say, right, well, you didn't do it, here's the giant correction, right? Like, because you know this, I'm proofing it. I told you to sit, you didn't sit, here's the big bang correction. I think that the language we use kind of enables people to do that, where they become a little bit more polarized and at the margins. Whereas like what I want people to, what I tried very hard for myself is to say, hey, I'm going to go out and make sure you still know that there's value in doing that in this location. And that value, like we might hit some problems of competing motivators and stuff like that. And of course, later or, you know, within that session, if I can, I'm going to up my, the value of my motivator and I'm going to try and have you maximally motivated for what I want to give you for having done that behavior. I want to reinforce it in a way that it will be reinforced. But if I can't do that, then I'm going to diminish the value of the other things, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to use the pressure that I need to, to make sure it happens. And I'm going to do it in a way where I'm helping you find the best value that you can, the best, the best experience that you can have having done the behavior that I want you to do. Mm. That I think is proofing, right? Rather than sort of just compelling the dog in the moment or yank and crank, because like I said, that leaves space for the dog not to know it, right? I hear what you're saying. My thoughts around that, And the understanding that I guess the way that I've learned and I try and explain it from there is I wouldn't say to a person, 
once you've done it in this area, then you've got to go out and proof it. What I would say to the person is you've proofed it here mm. because you've done so many reps that what you've done now is you've developed a mindset and a strategy around this behavior where it's almost flawless. Mm-hmm. And I reserve the right to say almost because I don't believe in perfection or complete flawlessness. They're not robots, they're dogs. Exactly, right. Let's say, for example, you're working in a very low stimulus environment. So you're inside our training shed for argument's sake. There's not much moving parts going in. You've reduced the capacity for the dog to be distracted or overwhelmed or motivated by anything else. Let's take a simplified exercise like sit for argument's sake. Mm -hmm. And I know that we can get into the weeds about how complicated a sit can be based on variations and expectations over time. But let's just take the ordinary bum on the ground. So let's say, for example, you've given the command sit or whatever language you want to use, but you've said sit in the English language. The dog then sits down. So you could argue over a period of time, you know, like you started to introduce mild stimuli, medium stimuli, high level stimuli, and the dog is not motivated elsewhere. Like the dog's attention is on you. Mm -hmm. You say sit and the dog will do it. 10 out of 10 times, 99.9 out of 100 times, Mm -hmm. the dog will do a sit. You could say, and you could have a good argument right there, that my dog is proofed in this environment to do a sit. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about anything else. We're just talking about sit. Then what you have to say to the student or to whoever's doing it, you or whomever, once you step outside the threshold of the door, you're not proofing the dog anymore. You're back in training phase, not teaching phase. The dog doesn't need to be taught how to sit. He just needs to understand now he's back in an operant mindset because there's a whole new paradigm of a world out there where the dog goes, oh, I don't do it like I did it in there. Like in there, I know how to do it. And in here, my mind is partially occupied with other things and you and your desire to want to make me sit. So if you have the mindset that you step outside the threshold and your dog is absolutely going to sit, you've already set the dog up to fail Mm -hmm. and yourself. Like the whole environment is now compromised because you have assumed something that you are not in control of because you're electing to take your dog into a mindset of chaos, Mm. and which is perfectly fine. You must do this. You have to do this as a handler, as a trainer, and the dog needs to be propelled into this as well. So you need to take out of control back into chaos. Mm. Then you're into a world where you're saying to the dog, I'm not proofing now, I'm training with my dog. So then you you go back to a strategy where you start to reduce your demand on the dog and say, okay, let's go back through some mild work with the dog, get the dog used to doing this. What I want to do is now that I'm introducing the dog back into this chaotic mindset, which has to be, I'm trying to really introduce the dog into mild stimuli, then medium stimuli, and then high-level stimuli. The problem for you is when you're in a safe environment and you're teaching the dog's work and you've gone all the way up to a proofing phase, you can control the environment. Yeah. You know, and we talked about this with Boyd last episode, but you can control the environment. You've got controller. You can lock the door, stop people from coming in. There's so many things you can do outside. That's where the real chaos happens mm. because you can't stop the bird flying as the example you gave before. You can't stop random people from walking into your, your place unless you're locking gates and taking control, but you can still minimize and reduce the effect of what's happening out there. But you're still in training phase. You're still training the dog at that point in time. You can't be in a proofing mindset until you've done the reps so many times that the dog is just conditioned to ignore it all and say there is no benefit in looking at the bird, looking at the person, looking at the cricket jumping along the ground. Like there's no benefit. It won't, I won't gain anything from it. There is no advantage to my life. Mm. Then 
And finally then when you have the result and you're back in 9.5 out of 10 times, 99.9 out of 100 times doing it, then you could say now I'm in proofing phase Mm. in this environment because now I've got another controlled environment. But then when you step outside that threshold and go somewhere else, you're back in chaos mode again. You know, so constantly the ebb and flow between chaos and control, and I know this sounds like an old Get Smart episode, (laughs) but but that's the mindset that people have to be aware of. And that's what causes a lot of fuckery for students when they're doing NDTF or any course around the world is the constant shift in the ebb and flow between control and chaos because you are and you have to be in that mindset all the time is I need to now take my dog into a chaotic environment. Mm. I need to take the dog. And when my dog is responsive there, then I can settle on. Proofing is just a word that we use, you know, like it's a, it's an industry word, but people have their own words, own terminologies. You can call it whatever you want to do. You can just say in control mode if you want to, mm. whatever, doesn't matter. But what has to happen is you have to coach the mindset that you're trying to develop long-term by taking the dog. And this is why it's very important that we are familiar with words like randomization and generalization and understand the concept of how to seed them into the dog long-term for our long game. Because randomization, this is what we need to do in, in order to develop generalization, is the dog needs to be randomly introduced to so many different things like this really is the crux and the main importance of when we get back into critical period socialization with puppies. This is why, you know, without risk of developing pathogens in the dogs like parvo and so forth like mm. that, but let's just drop that off the table for the moment, you know, do all the right things, be responsible, mm. but you must take your puppy out to all the environments and allow your puppy to view the world. We've talked about that to the cows. Come on. I don't want, I don't need to go on that. You can go back and research past episodes. There's plenty of information on that mm. or read Scott and Fuller's work. It explains it in much more eloquent detail. Getting into the adult dog, even the adult mindset. I mean, there is still critical functions like randomization that needs to take place because even in perfection of exercise, which I don't completely believe in, but you know, excellence in exercise for my mindset, even in excellence of exercises, you still need to introduce the random chaotic environment because you need to tempt the dog. And that's really what I'm getting to. The point is, is that temptation is really what you need to say is I want you to be tempted by this and then realize it's wrong. So then you reconnect the pathway and then you and I are synchronizing again. And that's where, like you said before, that's when you really know, does my dog genuinely understand what I want or have I corrupted my belief system and I've created this assumption, a human assumption that my dog fucking knows this. And that's one of the worst sins a dog owner slash trainer can develop. My dog knows this. Well, there's no way of knowing that until you've introduced the chaotic pathway. Yeah. So when the chaotic pathway is introduced and the dog is not tempted by it, temptation doesn't exist, then you can pat yourself on the back and say, yep, he knows it. Okay, I've taken him down. He watched a tram go by. He did the exercise. There were a bunch of kids kicking a football around. He did it. He knows the exercise. There's another dog playing in the park, which he usually would have a look at and he's tempted by. He did it. He Mm -hmm. knows the exercise. Then you can walk home feeling good and say to yourself, you know what? All those reps that I did, all of the agony and all the hours and all of everything that I've done, because it has to be that way. There's no way of avoiding. You just can't, you know, it's not like the movie Click with Adam Sandler where you just press a button and it just fast forwards you there. You have to go through the agony and the reps and the hours 
and the rain and the cold weather and the hot weather and the shit that that flows between everything else in order for that understanding to take place. Because that, my friends, is the path of chaos. The path of control is only obtained through walking through fucking chaos. Mm. Two things on that. Sure. I think something that took me a long time to find the right way to explain is like the sliding 80-20 rule. And I'll get to that in a second. Mm. But I think as well on what we're saying then, you were sort of indicating you got to make things more difficult, more chaos and that kind of stuff and progress upwards, which feeds into what I'm about to talk about. But also I want to acknowledge that that can go backwards as well. Yeah. So for example, the more mundane things are, the harder I have, the harder time I have controlling my own dog. Yep. Because he's a very highly aroused dog and the way that I train, I use, you know, a lot of reinforcement, train and drive kind of all the time. He... (laughs) the more wild shit gets, the more likely he is to do what I ask because he's stimulated. And the way that we train, he would genuinely believe that that is the gateway to going to interact with these things. So the bird that flies past or the, you know, the decoys agitating him, whatever, he gets actually better and more focused when those things happen because you've you've seen it hoping. Yeah. Because we've we've built up to that where I have trouble controlling my dog is at home. Yeah, right? where it's like there's no chance of reinforcement. And of course I could do that and I could just use pressure or I could just pay him, but that would change the way that he does these things. So like I find myself sort of politely asking my dog to do things all the time at home. Like, <laughs> hey man, would you mind just getting on the couch and sitting there for a little while? Especially now with a baby baby in the house. Yeah. And not that he does anything crazy, but I just don't want him walking around when we're doing the tummy time, right? Like, so I have to say like, hey man, do you mind going to your bed, please? And kind of like ushering him to it because of course I could give him a command and boom, he'll fly to that. But then the way that he goes to that is, you know, with expectation of reinforcement. And I don't want that level of arousal in my house, especially at that time. Mm. And I could compel him to go to there, but I also don't like to do that alone in the house. You know, like there's no, there's no need. You like your dogs to be at liberty at home. Yeah. I want him to just chill, but I'm, yep. I, and I'm got to kind of politely ask like, would you mind chilling over here in this location? And so where some people, it's not that I struggle with it, but it's just that I don't have the control mechanisms that a lot of people would want in that environment mm. because I don't want them there. I don't really have a lot of cause for them. I don't have a lot of need for them, but when I do want them, I kind of am sometimes like, I wish I had, a better way to manage this, right? Uh, so it's a sliding scale. It goes in both directions. Some people have, you know, trouble with their dogs in high arousal and, you know, they, they don't get exactly what they want from them as they escalate up. I tend to get better. But where I do struggle is in lower arousal because they I constantly have to fight the temptation just to flick my dog into drive and then he'll do whatever I say. Mm. But then I've got to deal with a dog in drive that I don't want to deal with. And I have to reinforce that drive in a way that I don't want to reinforce it in the house. So I kind of am, I accept a lot more mistakes in that circumstance. Can I ask you a question? Mm. Do you know anybody in life who's had complete control over mother nature? No. <laughs> that's, no. And that's the chaos. Yeah, yeah. And But what I think I find is the more, like a lot of people are surprised to hear me say that. And, you know, I do Skype calls where people are in my home, essentially. They're mm. looking into my house and they're surprised to see the way that I kind of live with my dogs and I don't have a lot of, I don't have cause for a lot of control over them in the house. Valerie barks when people knock at the door and I don't care. And I like it. It's no big deal. You know what I mean? Like our French bulldogs don't know sit and drop. Yeah. And people who come around here, that's very confrontational for them. Like yeah. they say, why? And I said, I've got no reason for it. Yeah. Macho and Randy, well, Randy, Macho's learning it all now, but Randy knows all of that and does it really well. Like he'll, he'll do it considerably well, even in a, as an old dog who doesn't have a lot of ongoing training. Like if I ask him to drop, he'll hit the ground as fast as he, his old body will still take him. Yeah. But 
my little house gimps, they just run around and fucking occupy space. Yeah. And people say to me, you don't control your dogs in the house. I said, if they're bothering you, there's two things that can happen. I can either move to m- to another room or you can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think that's the living with a dog. Exactly. You know? Like that's, I don't want my dog to be a robot in the house. I want his personality to show. Dave Croyer uh, talked about that. You yeah. Know, like he talked about his desire at one stage when he's done with all the things is just to have a dog that's living its life with in, in parallel with him. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I know we're not talking exactly about that right now because you're still, you know, Remy is still your demonstration dog. He's still your pet. He's still your home dog and yeah. so forth. And I guess it's the trials and tribulations of living with such a dog in close proximity. Yeah. And, you know, we're staring down the barrel realistically of probably not getting to trial with him again. And so like, have what am I going to do? Like, I want him to have a good life. I want him to be free and in the house and that kind but of you're stuff. you're still like, doing YouTube stuff with him. Yeah, I still train with him every and, day. And but, showing people what's achievable. Yeah, with but like with my focus on, I want him to be comfortable everywhere as much as possible. Exactly. To me, that's what I want. Right? Yeah. Let me go back to that 80-20. I think one of the things that the mantras that gets kind of thrown out is that, you know, the dog should do it eight out of 10 times before you name a behavior and there's stuff like that, right? So you're ready to leave the proofing for, or the training phase or- I think me and you use that language differently, the training and teaching phase. I think you, that- You say learning phase, I say, yeah. we say teaching phase, and it's the same thing. Yeah. Essentially, it's the same thing. And as I said before, it's just a variation in, in languages. Whatever doctrine you came from, you generally find that you have an understanding of that, but it, essentially, it's the same. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I've probably perpetuated this a little bit, but the idea that, you know- you, I say you're ready to leave the learning phase when your dog does it eight out of 10 times, yep. right? And for a while there, I was like, no, the dog has to do it 10 out of 10 times. And that's true. Mm. But I think the dog, what I mean by doing it eight out of 10 times is unassisted. And so like, again, this will depend on how you're training, right? So like, if you are not using tools, if you are at a point because, you know, it's how you train or you have a young dog or, you know, whatever reason you're not using any pressure, you very have to be much more careful because you can't afford to have those two out of 10 where the dog goes, no, I'm not doing it. Mm. Right. But I intentionally want to create that because two out of 10 times I want to be like, ah, you don't want to, but you have to. Right. And then in that environment, then I'm clear to leave the learning phase because the dog's got it, right? Like, That's so right. Now you're entering an operant field where yeah. you're justified in the use of, yeah. of punishments. But it's yep. happening yep. 10 out of 10 times. Yeah. But two out of those 10, I'm probably going to have to help the dog get it right a little bit. And that yep. might look like some negative reinforcement or something like that. But then that very quickly becomes 10 out of 10 without the use of negative reinforcement. Yep. So then that means I'm stagnant and I have to progress, right? So then I have to take that behavior somewhere else. And I have to up the criteria and like there's many ways I can up the criteria. I can do it via competing motivators, even just creating a level of arousal in the dog for the reinforcer I'm going to give him. It Mm. could be just, I go from the food to the ball or whatever it is. I want my dog to be doing it roughly eight times just by himself, positive reinforcement. And then probably two out of the 10, I want to control the environment to the point where the dog's like, nah, I'm, I've got something else going on or I can't think clearly enough or whatever, just two out of the 10 times. Yep. And those two out of the 10, I'm like, hey, but you have to, right? Here's the help into the behavior that is going to make you understand that this is what I want from you. And then quickly in that environment, eight out of 10 becomes 10 out of 10. And then we got to get a bit harder and mm. a bit harder and a bit harder. So when you watch people's training, if they're just training and there's no corrections happening, if the dog's just doing it, then 
they're probably not challenging their dog enough, right? Or they're at the point where, like, if you just catch a session of someone, you don't know any context on what they're doing and everything goes exactly as they asked, then you would say they're either not challenging their dog enough or they're at the point where they're ready to put in some more challenge, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that you're not challenging enough. It could be that you just got to the, like, in that session you observe, they've got to that that ceiling and it's time to break through that and go to a little bit more difficult. And like my opinion on that is that that's then the goal is to constantly be in that state of 80, 20. You constantly want the dog to be working towards like, I'm not a hundred percent sure so that in the real world, nothing is as hard as training. You know, we had to like throw away lines, but to, you know, here's an army one to, yeah, they say that the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in war. That's I, one, I like of the, it. Yeah. It's one of the classics, right? Yeah. And it's the idea is that like your training should be harder than reality mm. so that we, in reality, you're like, this is the easy part. And I think that really applies to dog training as well. And that we want to challenge the dog to the point where you're like, hey, I know this is probably more than you're expecting or capable of dealing with right now, but I'm going to help you get through it. I'm not going to yank and crank you through it. I don't expect you. Like when I entered this session, I have orchestrated this, that you will only get this right eight out of 10 times. And those other two I'm here waiting for, and I intend to help you get them right. You're not going to be out in the dark. You're not going to be left to fucking just like get two of them wrong. That's Mm. not going to happen. I'm going to help you turn eight out of 10 into 10 out of 10. And then when you then learn, okay, I know how to manage this situation, then we're going to change the situation to go back to that eight out of 10. And that's learning. I think that's what everybody does. That's what sport performance coaches do. That's what everybody that is in the like coaching space, all Mm. good coaches are pushing people to, you know, it's not get into the comfort zone of getting it right 10 out of 10 because that's stagnation, not going into what they sometimes refer to as like a survival mode or an emergency zone, which would be like six or less out of 10 that you're getting it right. So it's like sort of 60% correct. Yep. That 80% is spot on where you're like, hey, this is hard, but I'm doing all right. And when I don't do it quite right, there'll be help to make sure I get it right. And don't panic. Yeah. Don't induce panic. I think that's one of, you can take dogs out of this equation, working with so many staff I need my staff to understand, you know, especially now that we're coming into a very heavy period, like we're entering Christmas, which Mm -hmm. traditionally is our most intense time. And I need my management team and even my junior team to understand it's going to be busy. Mm. It's going to be hectic. It's going to be chaotic. You have to learn to be friends with chaos, embrace it, not fear it. You know, understand that chaos means that things at some times are going to be uncontrollable but there is always a path out of it. I think that's what you're talking about with the dog is to understand that you have a mechanism of getting back into control, you know, like understanding, embracing the chaos and saying, okay, it's stressful. It feels different. It doesn't align with everything that I'm used to, but it's okay. You know, because of the guidance I've had and the strategies that I've had and the management that's been layered in on top of everything I know now how to search for control again and I know how to get myself back onto track. We have meetings like that with staff when we're talking about control and, and productivity is to say it's the chaos is coming. Just embrace it. Understand that there are mechanisms in place. This is the way that you can look to control the situation again. You've got access to me. You've got access to your operations manager. You've got access to these resources, these policies, these procedures. Now, we talk about that in human construction. We don't have the ability so much to convey that to the dog other than like long-term rep examples of it. Yeah. And this is why it's very important, and we put this in place before, 
where we were talking about the relationship between training phase and proofing phase. Proofing phase is, it describes a phase that the dog does enter, but there is a relationship between training and proofing that is constantly vibrating between each other. Mm. So don't think that it's so fucking rigid that you have to be in one and you have to be in the other. The observations of everything, and this is where science really tries to explain to people, it's the observations of change that you need to be ready for. And therefore, that's when you can start making better conclusions about where you are simply through those observations. So as a trainer, as a coach, as a handler, anybody, when you're working with your dog, you have to be very observational about what's going on. You have to be very present in the time Mm. because those two – those two phases are very interchangeable mm. and you have to be ready for it. And that's where you just have to say, okay, we're not in proofing phase right now. We're back in training phase. I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that. The dog needs to be okay with that. And when the dog is okay with it, then we can say, like, for example, Ivan just won the championships the yeah. other day. Congratulations, Ivan. Congrats. Well done. Great yeah. job. When you're going out on the field like that, temporarily you're in proofing phase. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't Competition mean- Competition is- Exactly. It's yeah. proofing phase. Yeah. You're proofing all of your work. But that doesn't mean that when he's done, he doesn't go back on the field and start training again. That doesn't mean that any MMA fighter that kicks the shit out of their opponent doesn't go back because the new chaos that's coming is a new opponent who's got different strategies and different ways of fighting. Yeah. So that person, once they're healed up and they've got their time, they're straight back in the gym. You know, they're straight back into training phase to yeah. proof for that fight, you know, and then there's chaos that's going to be introduced there because that opponent's going to pull something that they weren't ready for. They think they've got it all down pat, but chaos is coming for them, Yeah, you know, and chaos is coming for you. That's the thing is that all we're trying to do, and I believe you do this eloquently with your training style, and I've tried to do it as much as I can with my training style, and most other trainers are doing it, is to say the world of chaos is always around you. Just don't fear it. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Just be prepared for it and coach yourself and coach your dog to understand when I step out, I can't control everything that's going on around me, but I can work towards that. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, you know, talking about Ivan just winning the DVG Nationals. I think yeah. DVG. I think something we kind of overlook quite a lot is that trials are the ultimate, you know, not just dog sport trials, but any real life event, a test. right? A test. Testing. Yeah is the ultimate and most high stakes evaluation of where you're at. It helps you stay out of your echo chamber. Yeah, but not just that. Like I think that a lot of people sort of, in trial things go wrong. No matter who you are, no matter what you're training, nobody gets 100% all the time, right? There's always something that can be improved from the perception of the judge. Mm. Some people it goes catastrophically wrong as soon as they're entering the field. Some people's dogs bite in obedience. You know, like there's lots of things that can go catastrophically wrong, but nobody gets 100% all the time, Mm. right? So- any form of testing, I think, is more often than not the greatest feedback you will ever get because mm. it's the testing under the circumstances you don't control. And we used to, there's a saying like when you're confronted with the black swan event. Have you ever heard yeah, of that? Yeah, I've heard of the black swan, yeah. Yeah, so the black swan, that's a really interesting saying. So like in medieval England, one of the, like a phrase in common usage yeah, it's similar to like, I would sooner see pigs fly. You know what I mean? Yep. Like was, I would sooner see a black swan than that happen. Mm. And that was just a, a really common phrase that people used all the time. And then English settlers come to Australia. There's a bunch of black swans here and they're like, oh, fuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay? there were no black swans yep. in 
in England and we got shit tons of them here, right? Yeah. So a black swan event is something you just could not have foreseen. Mm. There's just no way they could have known that. There's no way. They're, all the evidence suggests that that could never happen until that new evidence is presented and mm. you're like, oh, fuck. So that's a big term we use a lot is the black swan event. And in trial is where those black swans turn up, especially in your surprise scenario games. And even if you don't compete in any sports, in real life is where the black swan turns up, where you just couldn't have seen that coming. Mm. This this level of circumstances that came into this, this, you just could not have foreseen that in any way, shape or form. And it's fair and reasonable. That happens all the time. But instead of going, well, that was a black swan, that doesn't count. That's the time to look at it and go, okay. I found my hole. Well, it turns out black swans are common. Yep. Okay. So like, fuck, I have to, mm. I have to figure out how to manage that. And I think trial is a perfect example of that. Like my own, like when the second time I went for the level two and my dog fixated the wrong side down the field, that was a black swan event for me. I did not know that would happen. And I used the wrong command instead of going, oh, well, he got fixated downfield and I didn't have a mechanism to take control of him in that moment can't do that. I have to go, well, fuck, I didn't know that could happen. I need to develop in case that happens again. I need to rehearse for that. I need to practice for that. I need to make sure that in my training, I have seen that picture because I didn't, I haven't seen that picture until we're on the field Mm. and there's nothing I can do about it. Then we're being assessed, but I have to draw from that assessment. Not that we just didn't pass and woe is me. It's like, Oh, okay. There's a problem that I didn't know I had and I have to develop a way to fix that. Right. And, and the problem is twofold as well. Like, yeah, the dog got fixated on the wrong decoy, but also I had the tools. I just didn't, I had the, the the commands and the mechanisms to make him do the right thing on that moment, but I just didn't think of using them. Mm. Right. It goes in both ways. I, have to, I was going to say, then there's that. Yeah. So I'm accountable <laughs> yeah. for, no, I'm accountable in both instances, really. The dog's just having a mad time. But in one instance, he was fixated on the wrong thing. I neglected to be able to use the commands that I already had in place to get him to do the behavior that I wanted. So we really both have some liability there, but like, you know, 99% myself. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the beauty of going into competition is it's a safe version of that black swan because if you know if you're in the real world and something unforeseen happens and your dog gets killed or or fails to protect you and you get killed well that's a single event Mm. right and even you know if you've got an aggressive dog or whatever right like you you know say would take away bite sports and you know the competition that we're talking about but we're i mean like just real world you've got a problem with your dog and you uncover something you're walking down the street and something the dog comes rushing out of nowhere and you know all the random things that can happen Mm. you've got to be able to look at that and go okay well that happened and i I don't want that to happen again. I've got to find a way for that to not happen and work forward through that. Now I know it can happen, Yep. but where I want that to happen is in a test that is real for us, but still contrived. Let me for better explain. I was lucky that the day my dog got fixated on the wrong decoy and wouldn't find, wouldn't search for the other one is just a test. Mm. It was no big deal. I was like, Oh, bummer. Yeah. Right. You you weren't going into, I wouldn't get killed by, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't get shot or attacked by someone while my dog was off looking for someone else. Right. It was just like, Oh, bummer. Right. But now I know there's a problem there and I know how to fix that. And I don't do real world shit with my dog, but I train people that do. And now I know like, Oh, okay. Like now I know how to fix that. GRC is a great example. Mm. Your dog's got to hold it down while you go and 
interact with another person in the dog. If your dog gets up, well, guess what? He was back tied. The circumstances were set up because it was a trial that will allow for nothing unsafe to happen. Yep. That big gaping hole in your training is going to be exposed, mm. but it's going to be exposed in a totally safe way where when the black swan turns up, the, he's in a net and can't actually interact with you, right? Where you're like, oh, okay, I thought my training was better than it was. There's the evidence that it's not. I have to patch that, but nobody died. Yep. Nobody got their dog fucking torn to smithereens. Like, you know, like all the things that could potentially go wrong. That's why I'm so obsessed with competition. That's why I, I think that competition is so important. No matter, no matter what discipline you're into, you need to expose yourself to failure. Yep. You need to push to the point of failure and in a controlled environment. Embrace chaos. Yeah. 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 Push to the point of failure in a controlled environment where you, know, you can just go, oh, fuck. I have some work to do rather than like, oh, this is a catastrophic disaster and now I'm scarred or the dog's dead or, you know, whatever. And, and well, and- that's why I'm obsessed with randomization and generalization. Like yeah. they're my obsessions. Ever since I really learned about them and embrace them, it's a part of a lifestyle that I try and encourage everyone to get on board with. Mm-hmm. Because when you do, like you said, you know, the same sort of thing, you are simply going to enhance your lifestyle with your dog. You're going to enhance your understanding. You're going to grow as a person. Because you're going to know how to manage your stresses when they start arising. Because they're, I mean, they're fundamentally some of the worst things that can happen to you is when you're in a panicky situation and you lose control because your dog is not showing levels of control that you thought had. Yeah. So you're starting to go into a shutdown or a meltdown mode and there is no leadership there anymore. Have you seen the movie? You would have seen the movie Aliens. Of course. The, the second movie. It's the best one. Aliens. Ever. Aliens. When all goes to shit when they're in that power plant and the aliens start coming out, the lieutenant who's in the in the vehicle with them, he can't fucking function. Like he's having a full meltdown and Ripley just pushes him out of the chair and starts taking control. Because he's Is it going, Bill Paxton? No, it's Is not it? Bill He's out there. Bill Paxton's in there. Yeah. He's out there with the Marines. Yeah. I forget what the actual lieutenant's name, but he's sitting in the chair saying, hold down suppressing fire, you know, take out this. And his orders are all jumbled. The sergeant out there going, what? What are you saying? Because chaos is all around them and their leader is is not giving clear commands. Yeah, where that. Ripley basically says, get out of there now, withdraw him. And, you know, like, and then she grabs the vehicle and just starts plowing through the power plant to get them in there to get them to safety. I see that blockage happening with a lot of handlers and their dogs. And I know that's a, you know, weird example, but. No, it's a wonderful example. It's, a, it's one of the greatest movies ever. It's a great movie. Yeah. But, but that is a good example of what happens when leadership is not guiding you. Yeah. And things turn to shit quickly in there where what they should have just said is get out of there. Mm. Withdraw the troops right now. Meet us back here. There's imminent danger happening. Mm. You need to be prepared for that sort of thing as a handler, because, and especially your example, your classic example of people who have got dogs with known aggression issues. In situations like that, you need to be a professional handler with your dog. Yeah. You need to prep yourself to be better than just the mummy handler that you used to be. And that's no offense. I'm not trying to offend people by saying that. But, you know, the person who got the dog and knew little about it, that path has now changed. You know the dog is aggressive. You've accepted that. You've enrolled in consultation with professionals to help you get through that, or I hope you have. And now you need to be a person that understands and embraces that culture of chaos Mm. where you say anything could happen. I don't know what's going to happen because I can't control Mother Nature and I can't control what happens out of my controlled environment where I have been doing a lot of teaching exercises or learning exercises. Now I'm in exercises where – I'm literally in training phase when I step outside. I can't assume that I'm in proofing phase. I can't assume that. You know, this is real world randomization where 
whatever happens, happens. I need to be ready. I need to guide the dog into better pastures and say, this is a fucked up environment. I can see that I can lose control here quickly. I need to get out of it. Mm. You know, I need to get out of it and understand today is not the day where I die on the hill with the dog. Yeah. But then how do I replicate that and how do I create a controlled version of that later on to work the dog To the best of your ability. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez, Alien's a good movie. I've been just thinking of all the cool lines in it. It's so good, isn't it? I love the best line in that is where the the like sergeant says, it's another glorious day in the core. Every meal a banquet, every paycheck a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Bill Paxton says, yeah. He asks any question. He goes, yeah, how do I get out of this chicken shit unit? <laughs> oh, there's I, that I, chick. And he says yeah. to her, do you ever get mistaken for a man? She looks at him and goes, no. Do, do you? you? <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> I love the one where he's having a major freak out because the aliens have just worked out how to get into their command yeah, post. Yeah. He's going, they're going to come in here. They're going to come in here and get us. Yeah. And he, Ripley says, yo, this little girl's managed to survive all that time. And he goes, why don't you put her in charge? <laughs> <laughs> they mostly come out at night. Mostly. mostly. All right. Yeah. I reckon we've talked about lots of things that aren't suppression. Yeah. Including aliens. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's it. Mm. Hey, I'm going to America tomorrow. Yes. So but when this comes out, I'm there. PSA Nationals. Yeah. 20 year anniversary. 20th anniversary. So I'm trying to create, uh, did I talk about this on the show already? So I'm trying to create three massive pieces of content. Mm. I'm starting to realize the scope of which I might've bitten off more than I can chew, but I'm going to have a crack at it. A lot of that is going into Patreon. What I'm terrified about, and if anyone's listening, it's probably about the time that this would come out that I need this advice, is I'd have to get a COVID test to come home, but I need to find somewhere that can do that at a weird timing. So I need to get it on like Saturday. I think you're going to have to learn that on the field somewhere when you're in America. It's going to be hard. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm excited about that. It's my first time traveling to the States in nearly two years. Mm. It's a big deal. Please come and say hi if you're there. I'm going to take a bunch of Canon Paradigm stickers and stuff like that. Congratulations, so, Jerry and the PSA crew. Yeah. Well done, everybody. 20 years. It's yep. a huge, huge uh, really is. milestone. It's mm. very exciting. But I'm, I'm super excited to see everybody there. So yep. uh, come say hi if you're there. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, you're about to hit the button. I there. was because you just said that's it. And I've got uh, like a conditioned response yeah. to that now. <laughs> <laughs> Me saying that's it. Goodbye. <laughs> That's it for another episode of the Countdown Paradigm. If you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Mm. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. That is the place where we put some extra content, but it is the way that you can support the show. If you like the normal show, if you like the YouTube stuff that I put out, and if you want to see that stuff that's behind the paywall, jump into Patreon. We really can't describe how much uh, it means to us that people continue to contribute to Mm. what essentially is a free product anyway. And as a result, that's why we try to give a little bit extra into there so that people, you get a little treat. Keeps us running, pays our bills, share the love. And another way you can also share that love is you might not be in a position, we've said this before, you might not be in a position where you can afford Patreon. It might be with COVID and everything that's happened and job losses. We totally get that and understand that and still love you regardless. But you can still recommend it to other people. Other people might be able to currently afford it. So please help us support the show. Get on the Patreon. As we've said, there's tons of really cool content in there. We give away a shitload of free content. Mm. Uh, I saw somebody write that in the discussion group the other day where they said, oh, why would I want to pay for all this information? And somebody else jumped on there and goes, 
hey, man, they've done like 196 shows <laughs> that they've given away for free. This is our way of supporting them. So even the fact that somebody jumped to our defense yep. and said that, yep. you can't understand how much I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys more than you could know. I don't really track the stats because you guys maybe know that I have issues with numbers, but Glenn told me what our listener base is the other day, and I was like, oh, I didn't realize that many people were listening when I- uh, Yeah, uh, October was our highest month ever. Yeah, well, I think we beat it by about 2,000 active listeners. So Yeah, so it's, it's rising. Yeah, it's really rising. So we, we see a really good influx of people coming and jumping on the bandwagon. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey, buy our merch, you fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> buy some fucking t-shirts and underpants and stuff. Yeah. Rep the brand. Yeah, strut round, do a Dylan Anderson. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that's, I was <laughs> like, I had to think of, um, I thought I was thinking of a different Dylan then. I was like, don't do that. Remember Dylan where he <laughs> yeah, wore yeah, the- Yeah, 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 yeah. Where he wore the bum bag and nothing else. Yep. And he got a tattoo. He was the first. He was. He was the original. Jason, you were second. Yeah, and, and that was just ridiculous. On his booty hole. Yep. <laughs> yep, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> I appreciate both of you very much. <laughs> All right, so we bought our merch. If you want to get in contact with us, jump into the Facebook discussion group. In there, there's some like some cool information. You can group source stuff. Use mm. a little search before you post because there's a lot of stuff that goes at the same time and people might just sort of not give you the feedback that you want because questions are already answered. So just have a little searchy search. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Goodbye.